Just remember, originally this was a series that I asked Pastor Nichols to preach, and as I was talking to him about the idea of, hey, you know, maybe we should focus on something you did in the doctrine of God, on the names of God, and specifically the name Adonai, you know, which points to the fact that he's the supreme ruler of the universe. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the midst of all of the, the political, cultural discouragements that we're facing as Christians um, and that we're grieved over in our country, the continued sins that we're guilty of and so forth. Maybe you should do this. He said, well, that sounds great, Adam. Why don't you do it? So just to remind you all that I did try to get Pastor Nichols to do this, but he turned it back around on me. And uh, honestly, I'm glad to be able to, to, to do this and also hopefully to give him some relief as he has uh, told us that he probably preached more in 2020 than in any single year, other single year in, in his ministry just because of the shared uh, preaching uh, that he has had the opportunity to do with other men. So we hope that he has had some refreshment this weekend as well. So, so that's what we're doing. And we're coming specifically to the book of Ezekiel because as we mentioned in the beginning, in the first sermon, in Ezekiel we find this name of God mentioned more than any other place in the Old Testament. In fact, more than 50% of the references to Adonai, that's the name we're focusing on, which again means supreme king and ruler, that name is used repeatedly in Ezekiel. And as you read the book and as you read the history in Israel, it doesn't surprise us that this is the case because this book and this prophet preached in a very difficult time in Israel's history. Because of their sin, God judged them with the other nations, and specifically at this time, they're suffering at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians have destroyed Israel. They've taken and deported people from Israel to Babylon. Men like Daniel and his friends taken into the service of the king. These exiles we read of in the book of Ezekiel, living by the river Chabar. They were removed from Israel and taken to Babylon, a foreign nation. And many of the Israelites are no doubt discouraged. Why is this happening to us? We're supposed to be of all the people on earth, the chosen people. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has given us so many promises, the God of David, the God of Solomon, the God of all of these in our history who has always proven to be strong for His people and against His enemies. Well, we know that the nation fell into serious sin and that the prophets were sent to warn them to repent to turn from their sin, or he would judge them. And it wasn't until it wasn't until after God had repeatedly, for years, warned the Israelites that his threat finally came to fruition. And they're being judged. They're being chastened. They're being disciplined severely for their sin. They're witnessing, literally, their nation slipping through their fingers. You'll know at this point in time in Ezekiel's ministry, this is after the deportation in 597, Ezekiel is, is living in Babylon, but it is before 
the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586. So it's in that time frame in between. So there's still people living in Israel, in Jerusalem. There are political leaders there, as we read them in the beginning of the chapter in Ezekiel 11. And even though Babylon has come in and taken many of their countrymen away and deported them to Babylon, has this been enough to humble these people? Nope. Those who filled the political vacuum and took charge in Jerusalem are now abusing their countrymen. And they're stealing from them. And it seems you get from the beginning of chapter 11, it's almost like a, a Jewish mafia. They're literally killing their own countrymen in the streets. They got the blood of their countrymen on their hands. Maybe in their efforts to gain and to improve their own financial well-being. And their hearts are not right with God. And God knows this. We read of it in the beginning of, 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 of chapter 11 here. And it's no wonder God again is right, you know, raising himself up and saying, Ezekiel, prophesy, prophesy. These leaders need to know what I know. And they need to know the end of their activity. So this is a very difficult time, a very discouraging time. And it's no wonder that this name of God repeatedly is used, Adonai Jehovah, Adonai Yahweh, to remind the people in exile, especially those who are the remnant, who are the true people of God, who do love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Men like Daniel and his friends and others. We know that God has a remnant, brethren, in every generation of his true people who worship him to encourage them that even though all these things are happening, our Lord is still upon his throne. He was given this incredible, inaug inaugur uh, this, uh, incredible vision in chapter 1. We read of it. His call to the ministry, God comes to him in glory and in power. We recognize the glory of his angels that were with him, the glory of his chariot with Ezekiel's wheels. We mentioned all of those things, and then Ezekiel got to see the Lord himself sitting upon his throne, and all of this would have been communicated to God's people and would have breathed comfort and encouragement into their discouraging hearts. So now we're moving to the last part of this series, which is just going to give you an example of the ministry of Adonai, the ministry of God through Ezekiel to his people. And obviously it's a very large book. This is just one passage that I thought we could focus on uh, this morning, just to get a glimpse of the kinds of ways that God was encouraging his people throughout this letter. We're going to focus particularly on verses 13 through 21. This is the ministry of Adonai, which is equivalent to the ministry of Ezekiel. The things that Ezekiel heard and was charged to speak and preach to the people, these are the things God would have his people be encouraged about. Lessons about the king of kings that we would think about and be comforted by. And he reminds us where we ought to be drawing our comfort and peace, brethren, even in our own generation. Our comfort and peace is communicated to us not because of the nation that we live in or because our candidate of choice got elected to office or because of anything that's going on in our country or our country itself. Our peace is communicated to us through our true refuge and strength, our true present help in trouble, who is Adonai Jehovah, the King of Kings, 
and our Lord of Lords. And he reminds us in this passage and really throughout the Word of God that his presence is not primarily associated with a building or a piece of real estate or some nation in the world. But he's with his people who worship him in spirit and in truth through faith in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope through these things, brethren, we will be encouraged. Now, in Ezekiel 11, 13-21, God's name Adonai Jehovah is found four times. Verse 13, 16, 17, and 21. I am your God, the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And no matter what your condition, no matter where you're living, whether in Jerusalem or by the river Chabar in Babylon, in the midst of a people of a strange language, I am still on my throne. Nothing has phased me. Nothing has shaken me. And I'm still, even in the midst of these discouraging times, working out my purposes for your good. God is in control. And no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, brethren, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because He is our refuge. And he is unfazed and unmoved by things that get us excited and get us worried and nervous. So let's look, look a little bit here at verses 13 through 21, the ministry of Adonai. The first thing we'll look at is the context of Ezekiel's alarm, and we kind of touched upon it already in the Scripture reading. Look at verse 13. Now it came about... As I prophesied, that Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. This is one of the 25 political leaders that he gave him a vision of here in the beginning of the chapter. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, was one of the 25 rulers in Jerusalem. Again, that was already mentioned. Perhaps the new political leadership that filled the vacuum left behind by rulers taken away in 597. He was one of the elders or leaders, again, most likely ruling over the remnant of the people living in Israel. According to Daniel Block, Pelatiah meant Yahweh has rescued. It was a popular name at this point in Israel's history, pointing to the longing of God's people to be delivered from their enemies. And it's very, very interesting that though the man had a great name, he had a really bad heart. He had a name that would have pointed him to the goodness of God to save and to deliver. But he had no interest in God's salvation. All of his interests were centered upon his own, his own corrupt desires. The leaders were probably taking land from the weak in Jerusalem, taken advantage of their countrymen who were exiled as well. They described Jerusalem as a storage pot that was going to be protected from predators that was going to be okay because it was the city of God and we're your new leaders and we're going to make things right and we're going to protect you. And they led to the people to think all kinds of things falsely about those who were exiled and were and were. Uh, 
taken away, that they were the judged of God, those who had been taken away to Babylon. Those were the problem people in Israel. Those were the people we needed to be rid of. And God removed them. And he left the cream of the crop here. We were the, we're the good ones. But those people, they got taken away because they had sin. They were a blight. They were a curse upon us. All kinds of, of ways of describing this that were completely outside reality of what was really happening. And it's no wonder God wakes Ezekiel up with his spirit to go prophesy against them. Put your trust in us and in the fact that we, dear people, are the chosen of God. These are the kinds of things that we're probably preaching to their countrymen. But in their hearts they devised wicked schemes as God has said and ruled the people for their own advantage. And God promises to them and through Ezekiel to judge them. In verse 13, Ezekiel begins to see the prophecies come true. Pelatiah dies, symbolizing that what the, what the Lord promises, what the Lord threatens, will come to pass. And Ezekiel, it's interesting as we read of his reaction, he seems distressed, doesn't he, in verse 13? He seems horrified. His hope, it seems, is, is kind of tied to this remnant still living in Jerusalem. Like Jerusalem's still there, and there, there are still our countrymen who are living there, okay? And as long as they're living there, you know, we have hope of maybe returning to them. But now God's starting to deal with them. Now they're starting to die. Now they're being judged. And it's almost as if these exiles, though their countrymen back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, at least the leaders, are misrepresenting them and, and slandering them. The hope of these exiles in Babylon is on their countrymen, the remnant that's left in Jerusalem. So long as they're there and the city still exists, we have hope to return one day. That could be what's happening here. Ezekiel's distressed. It seems to be the source of this horror. Alas, Adonai Jehovah, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Even the prophet needs to be educated on who the true people of God really are. That it's not just the physical descendants of Abraham living in the land that God promised Israel that is a symbol of the remnant, that is, that is the true Israel. They could be scattered throughout the world right now, Ezekiel. God's going to teach them that. Those who call upon his name in faithfulness and in truth. I think his horror was shared by many of the Jews that were scattered abroad. Looking back to these people in Jerusalem, putting all their hopes in them, this occupation, it was of vital importance. So long as our people still lived there and the nation existed, maybe someday we'll get to go back. With the final and ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and of our people, maybe they thought it would be the end of their nation 
forever. Will you bring the remnant of Israel, those still living there, to a complete end? This is the problem that that we are sometimes tempted to have, brethren. What's going to happen to the cause of Christianity if if America dies? Our our religious freedoms, the, the Bill of Rights, our nation founded upon so many biblical principles. What's going to happen to the church? Are we going to be okay? Or we worry about our kids and our grandkids? What kind of nation is going to be left for them? What kind of a world is it going to be for them, for them to raise their families and, and to get a job and to provide for them? So are they going to be able to do it? We get worried about the state of our country because the state of our country in many respects is, is tied to our well-being. And we can be, we can be uh, distracted by these things, just as these folks were. So much of our inward peace at times is built on things that really are unable to give us peace, that are volatile, that change, that are this way one day and another way the next. And we need to be careful what we connect our inward peace to, what we make the peace of our souls, the well-being of our hearts, based upon. And maybe some of us have been more discouraged than we should be in these days. Because somehow we think ultimately our peace is connected to this country, to the cultural situation, to the political situation. Guess what? It's not. God is going to teach us here as he's teaching his people in, in Babylon. That it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who the king is. It doesn't even matter any of the circumstances you find yourself in. Though they be difficult and hard. There is a way for you to have peace no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. No matter what country you live in. We just heard about the incredible anxiety-filled uh, you know, producing situation in Burma. God is saying to those Burmese Christians that in the midst of being bombed, in the midst of thieves potentially taking your life and stealing your property, even you can be at peace in your souls. God can give you a sense of well-being, that everything's going to be okay. Even though you may have to stay up all night protecting orphans, women and children, it's going to be okay. How do you get that kind of a sense in those circumstances? You get that directly from God. You get that directly from the Lord Jesus. What did he say to the multitudes? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will rest you. Not give you rest. God communicates rest. He communicates spiritually well-being to the souls of his people, no matter what their circumstances, no matter where they're living, no matter if they're living under enemy, idolatrous kings and rulers like Nebuchadnezzar or not, you can still have peace in this world in God. That's what he's going to communicate. And he begins to answer Ezekiel's horror and frustration beginning in verse 14. Adonai Jehovah is with his scattered people. Verses 14 through 16. This is something he's teaching them in these passages. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 15, 
son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. He's letting them into what their countrymen back in Jerusalem are saying about them as exiles and saying about their condition. And he wants them to not think like those living in Jerusalem are thinking. They believe that because you've been removed from Jerusalem and are living in Babylon, that you have been removed from the presence of God. Go far from the land. This land has been given us as a possession. The Lord has weighed and judged all of the Jews, and some have been found wanting. In other words, the reason you're exiled and we are still here in Jerusalem is because the favor and presence of God is upon us, and he has completely abandoned and left you. Otherwise, why would you be in Babylon? In other words, if you're not living in Jerusalem, in Israel, near Jerusalem, the place of God's dwelling, God is not with you. Because this is where He is. This is the nation that He's with. This is the physical location upon earth that God dwells. Those in Jerusalem were most likely being led to believe they were more secure than they thought. Now the Lord answers this reasoning and this false thinking in verse 16. Therefore say, verse 16, Thus says the Lord God, Though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. It's an amazing thing that the Lord scatters His people in judgment, but He doesn't leave them. He disciplines His people. He disciplines His children, but He doesn't forsake them. It's the same thing with parents, isn't it? We have to discipline our kids sometimes. We have to chasten them with the rod or whatever it is in a loving way, but we have to do that sometimes. But what happens after you discipline your child? Hopefully this happened or happens. It's an amazing kind of a weird experience because right after you get done spanking your son or daughter for their disobedience, you give them a hug and you tell them how much you love them. And in fact, you tell them that you're chastening them because you love them. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? That's how God deals with his people here. He says, yes, it's true. I've scattered you, my people. But I'm also a sanctuary for you wherever you be scattered to, wherever you are. Just because I've disciplined you and chastened you doesn't mean I've left you. Doesn't mean I can't be with you wherever you have gone. Brethren, this to us, you know, we, we understand this doctrine. To us, it's 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 basic. But to these people in those days, they didn't understand this completely. That's why it's so dramatic and amazing that God shows up in these glorious visions to Ezekiel 
while Ezekiel is in Babylon. That's what he's communicating to the prophet and to his people. Usually, people get visions of me in Israel. Why are people getting these glorious visions of the presence of God and of the glory of God in a place like Babylon? It's because God is not restricted to live within the four walls of any nation or temple. God is everywhere and can be anywhere in an instant. We looked at that a few weeks ago when his people call upon him in faith and in truth. My presence isn't limited to a place. Jerusalem is not a prison for God, for his special presence, keeping him from being in other places and other countries. I was a sanctuary for them, wherever they may be. This is an important lesson for us to understand. Do not place faith in the physical boundaries of Israel or in the physical temple building. Place your faith in the God of Israel, in the God whose temple it was. As Solomon said, get a vision and get a grasp on what he said after building that glorious temple, that glorious dwelling for the Shekinah glory of God in 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. The supreme ruler of heaven and earth cannot be contained within one nation or one building. Indeed, heaven can't contain him. We're reading God's word. He's everywhere at all times. And his special presence is always with his people who worship in spirit and in truth. God is speaking to His people through revelations and visions Ezekiel's receiving in a foreign land. And brethren, whether Israel exists or not, whether God's people live in Jerusalem or by the river Chabar, He's always with us and He will never leave us or forsake us. God is saying to Ezekiel, am I going to bring the, the, the remnant of Israel to a complete end? You are part of the remnant of Israel. You are part of the people of God. You are my people no matter where you live. You don't have to physically be in Jerusalem to continue to be God's remnant, to continue to be my people and to have me be your God. That's what he's teaching him. God will be a sanctuary for His people, whether they gather in a building or in a forest, whether they gather together in freedom, in a nation or in disobedience to the laws of that nation. No nation, no earthly ruler, no circumstance will ever keep the Lord from being near to His people. He will never leave us nor forsake us and will always give us grace in times of need, no matter what. That's pretty reassuring, isn't it? That's a fountain of peace and security to your soul, brethren. You don't need the right political leader. You don't need the right set of political circumstances. You don't need any of that to have true, solid joy and lasting peace. You need God to be with you. And He promises to be in every circumstance we find ourselves 
in life. And that's what he's teaching these people, both in Jerusalem and those who find themselves deported to a foreign nation. Now Adonai, the Lord gives them a promise in verse 17. He gives them a promise to gather them again. He reveals through Ezekiel that the same God who sovereignly scattered his people, that that was his doing, to judge them and to chasten them, also has the power and ability to gather them again. Verse 17, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. What a blessing. God gives Ezekiel and his people a vision into the future. And he gives them a promise that they can bank on, that they can count on, that can give them peace, that can give them encouragement. No, Ezekiel, I'm not bringing the remnant to a complete end, though you be scattered. Throughout the world, and the nation physically, its boundaries, its political stance in the world is gone for a season, yet I still have my 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And it's a temporary situation. The nation of Israel is being chastened, but restoration to the land and to relationship will come again. Your future is not tied to your brothers who have remained in Israel. It's tied to me and my promise. Not them. Not people. Me. That's the hope of the church, brethren. The hope of the church isn't tied to you and I. The hope of the future of this church isn't tied to getting 10 more people in here, 20 more people in here, 100 more people in here. It's not numbers that make a church endure. It's God. The future of this church, the future of the church in the world, is connected to the power of the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. To the Lord Jesus who says and who has promised Satan Upon that, this rock, my church will be built and the gates of Hades will not withstand it. Where I want it to expand, it will expand. And it is an ever-increasing kingdom that the devil cannot stop and that will be successful forever and ever. Our future, our well-being, the future of the church is not connected to people, it's not connected to personalities within the church. Oh, we just need another Martin Luther. We need more men like this. We need more men like that. No, we do not. We need the Lord. We need Him. We need Him to fulfill His promise. We need Him to work and act. And everything's going to be okay. The same God who scattered you for your sins, Israel, will restore you once again to live in the land, having repented and turned back to my way. So He gives them this encouraging promise that there's going to be opportunity for you to return, that the nation will come back, that you will be brought back to this land that I've scattered you from. I will do it, and I will gather you. And then he moves on to give them a promise of a new heart in verses 18 through 20. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart, and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart 
of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. Here is the spiritual surgery the Lord promises to perform on all who shall be called His people. This is what it means to be called the people of God. This is a lesson that God is trying to get in to the thick, stubborn hearts of His people in the Old Testament. What does it truly mean to be the people of God? Even Ezekiel and his countrymen don't completely understand it. Well, it means to live in Israel. It means to have the temple. It means to have all of these privileges and all of these ceremonies and all of these things we do and all of these things nobody else does. Just we do. What does it really truly mean to be the people of God? What does it truly and really and sincerely mean to be a son of Abraham? Does it mean to be physically born of Abraham? To be an Israelite? To be Jewish? In terms of ethnicity? To be able to trace your physical descendant all the way back? Or your physical family tree all the way back to Abraham? Physically? To be Jewish? God's describing in the passage what it truly means to be an Israelite. What it truly means to be circumcised. What it truly means for you to be able to say, the true God of heaven and earth is my God. And we, and I, am a part of His people. What does that look like? He's telling us here. He's telling us what it looks like in this passage. Because He's going to do it for His people. He's saying everyone who is truly an Israelite indeed, has been given a new spirit, has been given a new heart. Their heart of stone, of rebellion, and of living in disobedience to me has been removed, and they've been given a heart like David, a heart that pants after me, that loves me, that wants to live for me, that wants my glory to be known in the world, that wants to serve me, that wants to please me, not just outwardly with the lips, but inwardly from the heart, my people. And he's saying, when I bring you back to Israel, this is something else I'm going to do. I'm not just going to work to bring you physically and outwardly into the nation. I'm going to work on your heart and on your inward man and on your soul. Now that's exciting. Like Moses in his ministry was so frustrated and stressed because no matter what word he gave to the people of God, even though they saw visions of God, they saw the glory of God come down upon the mountain, they saw God part the Red Sea, do miracles that we have never seen or will ever see in our lifetime. They got to see walls of water all around them and their feet walking on dry ground. And they still did not believe in the God of Moses. They still complained. They still rejected. Because in their hearts, they did not love God like Moses did. 
Remember when God pours out the Spirit upon the 70 to help Moses in the leadership and in the judgment of the people. And one of them wasn't where he was supposed to be when the Spirit of God was going to be poured out on that day. And Joshua comes running to Moses. Moses, these two guys were outside the camp and the Spirit fell on them too and they're supposed to be in here with us. And Joshua was complaining and Moses is like, what are you talking about, man? This is not a day to complain and to get nitpicky. The Spirit of God's being poured out in more measures that we've ever seen before. Would that all of God's people had the Spirit of God poured out upon them. This is God's promise. All of God's people, one day this is how they would be primarily marked out. It doesn't matter if they're Israelites or Babylonians or from China or from America. When the gospel is preached, the power of God is this. I'm going to go into the souls of people and I'm going to take out their hard heart and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And they're going to love me with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're going to be regenerated. They're going to be changed. Not just their outward political situation and where they're living, but inwardly from their souls. I'm going to do this work in the heart and soul of man for my glory and their good. For my glory and their good. I mean, Israel, the nation of Israel and its history is a testimony to us all, brethren, that salvation is all of grace. That even with all the privilege and miracles you would get to see, you still, in your hardness of heart, would not turn to God, you would not repent, you would not believe. It takes God doing spiritual surgery on an individual for them to repent and believe. It's all of grace from beginning to end. It's all of grace, and bless God, He does it. Here He promises to do it, and He's going to do it. This is what they're going to look like. And when you trace the history of Israel, and you read about Ezra and Nehemiah, this is what really marked these men. It wasn't that they could trace their genealogy to the Jews primarily, but it was Ezra and Nehemiah and the people who came back to Jerusalem. Man, they had a heart for God. You realize most Jews did not leave the places that they were living in when they got scattered. When the nation was being reorganized again, very few came back from Babylon. Many of them stayed throughout the world and in Babylon. They stayed scattered. God still met with His true people in those circumstances, but it was the people who loved God from their souls. They were willing to sacrifice for God. And do hard things for God from the heart when He called them to. When you read about that generation that came out of Babylon and back into Israel, led by Ezra and Nehemiah and the others, who would stand up hearing Ezra preach the Word of God for hours on end because they wanted to know God's ways and they wanted to walk in them. And they repented for their sin again and again and again. That generation that came back into Israel was marked by repentance, was marked by faith, was marked by those within whom God had performed spiritual surgery to His praise and to His glory. And He's teaching them and He's teaching us and reminding us it's not privilege that saves. It's not ethnicity that saves. But all who repent and believe are saved. It's so sad to see our country trying to accentuate perceived differences between people by the color of our skin. No matter how hard the world tries to divide people along the lines of race and of color, 
people are human beings and we all have more in common than we don't. And you know what we all have common? Have in common, we're all born of Adam into sin, separated and alienated from God. It's the heart's condition, not the skin's color, that's the most important thing. Where are you with God this morning? Black, white, Chinese, Asian, it doesn't matter. You're a human being made in the image of God with all the dignity that comes with that. But you're living for yourself, you're living for your sin, you're living for something else, and you are under the threat that these Israelites were under and were suffering. The judgment of God for your sin. Where are you this morning? Where are we? Are we right with God? From the heart, do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do we seek passionately to live for Him? Do we grieve when we sin against Him? And pray for repentance and pray for forgiveness and pray for fresh cleansing in the blood of Christ. He ends the passage after talking about the spiritual surgery with a warning. This is all preaching given to Israelites to wake them up out of this idea that just because they have this name and this history, they're going to be okay. He says, but as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things, verse 21, and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. Judgment starts with the household of God and then goes out to the world. Israel did not escape judgment because of their name. Jewish people who reject Jesus Christ, who reject the God of the Bible, are going to go to hell. Just like Americans who reject God and who reject Jesus Christ. Black people or white people, it doesn't matter. God is willing to save anyone and all who call upon Him. He does not discriminate like men do. He calls all men everywhere to believe in Him and He will save. But if they don't, no matter their background or their ethnicity, they'll go to hell. Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died for those who see themselves as hell-deserving sinners and who want to be saved and delivered. And if you look to Him, you can be saved too. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords Yes, He is all of these things. But it's amazing how Israelite forgot who their true king is. And what that really means. It means that they needed to serve Him. Live unto Him as Lord, right? Adonai Jehovah, that's who He is. The supreme ruler of heaven and earth. Every nation is accountable to Him. Every political leader is accountable to Him. That's something that we learn from this passage, isn't it? As we close our time in application. You're a political leader. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And you're going to give an account to the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. How did you use that authority? To the glory of God? Did you use that authority in fear and in trembling? Wanting to do the will of God? Or were you pushing your own agenda or the agenda of your party or the agenda that you knew was against God's way and will? You're going to give an account for that one day. God knows your heart, Republican. He knows your heart, Democrat. He knows your motive. No matter what you say, be careful. God knows the truth. 
And that's true of us too, whether we're in political leadership or not. God knows everything about us. He sees our thoughts and the intention of our heart. And that's a good thing, because sometimes people don't see it, right? And we have good intentions, and we get misrepresented. Be encouraged. God sees your good intention. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. That can be good, but it could also be terrifying. If you're trying to hide from God, you can't. The light of his all-searching eye goes down into your soul and into your thoughts. And he knows where you're at this morning. He knows where you're at with him. He knows what you're thinking. And you'll give an account, just like the leaders in his day will give an account. Once again, as we close, our country, brethren, is not the basis of our security. God is. He is the basis of our peace and of our well-being. He is a sanctuary for his people in every generation. And what a blessing in any and all circumstances. Paul told us he has learned the secret of contentment. Whether he has a lot or little. No matter what circumstance Paul was in. Beaten and imprisoned, he's still filled with the joy of God and the peace of God, singing praises to God. Though his body is hurting, his heart is filled with peace and security. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow in that Philippian jail. And then through the night, we don't even get to tomorrow, God rocks the jail, sets him free, and saves the jailer. And establishes a church. God is amazing what he can do. He is not limited by our weakness, by our limitations. And again, God's sovereign purposes as the King of Kings are being worked out perfectly. All of His purposes for our country. You know, it says in the Word of God, He sometimes raises up nations and He brings them down. He determines the boundaries of a nation's existence. Nations are accountable to Him. You realize that most of the nations that were dispossessed of the land that Israel occupied were dispossessed for their sin. The time of their living in sin and in rejection of God was over. And they were judged and removed from the land and Israel was brought in. Not because Israel was better, but because God had enough of their sin. And our nation could be heading there. Looks like it's heading there. We have no right to say that our nation will exist for 10 years, 20 years, another century. No right while living in such rebellion and with the blood on our hands as a civilized nation. It's amazing we can even call ourselves that with the kinds of despicable and wicked things we justify. But his purposes, even through it all, are being worked out for our good. And that, that also goes for our circumstances, brethren. He's bigger than our circumstances and he's with us in them all. He never leaves us to endure something on our own. That's a great thing, isn't it? No matter what circumstances, no matter what trial, no matter what difficulty, you may not even be in one this morning, but eventually you will be in a very difficult, dark circumstance. Don't believe the lie of the devil. God is with you in the most dark and difficult circumstances and can be with you. This is the thing that just breaks my heart when I hear people committing suicide when they get to the point in their lives when they believe there's no hope, if that's you this morning, maybe you're listening to this, don't believe the lie of the devil. Don't believe your only answer is to take your own life. That is a lie from Satan and from the pits of hell. 
believe in the one who is called the light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. Cry out to him in your soul to save you, to have mercy upon you. And he will do that. To be with you in your despair. To be with you in your difficulty. To lift your soul out of that abyss. And to be filled with peace, even when outwardly your circumstances maybe are telling you you shouldn't have that. You can have that with the Lord. That is a great blessing. That is a great Savior that we have, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Ezekiel is being told of the love of God for his people in this passage, but we have much more of the love of God revealed, don't we, in in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he he didn't spare his only son, but delivered him up for us. That we need to be saved, not just from foreign nations, but from our own sin, a greater problem, and that Jesus Christ is able to do it. What a great God we have, brethren, who has proven this fact that He's always with us and will never leave us or forsake us by the sending of His only Son to deliver that message and to come on a mission to save His people. And He was able to do that. And all who call upon Him will be saved and will not be disappointed. Well, I pray this will be an encouragement to your souls as we think about this great God that we serve, that He's still upon His throne. Let's draw our time to a close in prayer.